has been so, so good to us. Amen. Thank you for what you do up there, Brother Roger. That was a blessing. I appreciate what you do and how you do all that in there. It's oftentimes overlooked, but thank you so much for all that. Thank the Lord for His goodness. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to John's Gospel, chapter number 6, and look at verse number 47. Uh, today we'll be observing the Lord's Supper here in a moment, and so I just want to give a brief charge, and as we reflect on the table and what our Lord Jesus has done for us and what it symbolizes, what it means, and I want to look at a, almost an enigmatic uh, uh, passage of Scripture, uh, one that would, it may be often confused uh, from the lips of the Lord Jesus, but I want to look at it closely and I want to talk to you on this subject this morning. I will not be ashamed. There's an aspect of the Lord's Supper in which it is a public statement of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so I want to come in at this table from that aspect. And I want us to not be ashamed of Jesus. Read, uh, let's look at verse 47. We'll read down through 51. Actually, we'll go all the way through 71, the end of the chapter, but... I want us to look at this first section and we'll move on from there. But John chapter 6 and verse 47, Jesus is speaking. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Boy, isn't that a good verse. That's the gospel. Amen. Believe on Jesus. There's a lot that entails that. There's, the, there's, there's a multitude of theological facets that come to that. But it all boils down to believing on Jesus and having everlasting life. Verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I will not be ashamed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. As we come to this passage of Scripture and its importance, as we'll read later, Father, there are many that came and became embarrassed by what Jesus was saying. And they turned and did not follow him from that day forward. God, do not let us be like that. Let us have in our mouths and hearts the words of the Apostle Peter that questions where else can we go to have eternal life. There is no other place but to follow Jesus and help us to not be ashamed of that truth. In a world in which we live where that message is sought to be squelched and to silence, God, let us not be ashamed. God, let us be invigorated by this, by this table, by the truth of your word, to go out these doors and not be ashamed of Jesus. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm sure that many of you have noticed all the plethora of political messages that are coming out. Right about now, as we approach election day in, in a week or so, we, uh, uh, we'll, we'll be bombarded by more and more. You know, during an election, people make it clear what side they stand for. 
Uh, they display their preferences on bumper stickers and placards and commercials on television. They, they show up at rallies and they stick signs in their front yard. But there are also people who either don't care or are undecided. They haven't really flown their flag either way. They're, they're, they're not really telling anybody. They're kind of waiting until the end to see how things work out. You know, that latter category is very fitting for many Christians when it comes to Jesus. The world is still, uh, um, the world is still not too clear on exactly where they stand as far as when it comes uh, to Jesus Christ. They're not too sure on what side they're on. Wives, what would you think uh, about a husband who never wanted to be seen with you in public? He said, I'll eat dinner with you as long as we eat it at home. I'll watch a movie with you as long as we do that in our living room. After a while of avoiding any kind of public occasion in which you might be seen with your husband, you would get the impression that your husband is ashamed of you. That kind of behavior, we would take, I mean, you would be insulted by that, wouldn't you? You would be insulted if you thought that your husband wouldn't want to be seen with you in public. Well, if that is the case, then Jesus is insulted on a regular basis by many so-called disciples. In private, they will identify with him, but not in public. In public, they don't want folks to know that they're one of those crazies. They don't want them to know that they're deeply associated with Jesus. To put it bluntly, when it comes to the, the, the run-of-the-mill meetings in the world, checkout line conversations, there are many people who just want to avoid the subject altogether. They are ashamed of Jesus. Here in our text, Jesus made some difficult statements. If you'll go with me to verse uh, number 60. And again, we're going to go over this whole passage. But look at verse 60 of these things that Jesus taught. You know, in the last one in 51, he said that they had to eat his flesh. His flesh is bread. And there was confusion over that. Jesus explained some of that in 53 through 59. And then look at 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said... This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said, doth this offend you? Many of those that were so-called followers became embarrassed about what he had said. His statements were difficult. And as we come to the end of this text, many of these disciples turned away and never followed him again. They were ashamed of what he said. They shied away from who Jesus was and what he was doing and what he was commanding. The description Jesus is giving us points directly to what we are doing this morning. You see, my question is, uh, my question to you is, are you ashamed of Jesus? Oh, not behind these walls. No, no, no. We would, we would freely have conversation in this, in the confines of the cocoon of religious uh, uh, gathering. We, we wouldn't have any problem.
problem with talking about Jesus or boasting about Him or singing about Him. But I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about outside of these doors. Out there. Are you ashamed of Jesus out there? Let me be clear. We should not in any way be ashamed of Jesus. Whether we, whether we are on the local news or down at the job or in the halls of our, of our political realm or our city schools. This morning I want you to look with me at this scripture and see what turned many of these followers away from Jesus and declare and affirm that we will not do the same. We're not going to stop following Him. We're not going to turn away. But we will bear the reproach, the shame of being associated with Jesus Christ. Now I want to look at this from three aspects. Number one, I'll make this statement. I will not be ashamed of His sovereignty. I will not be ashamed of His sovereignty. Now presently, in Jerusalem, on the mount of where once stood the temple, there stands to this day an Islamic mosque. And many, many hundreds of years ago, uh, Islam invaded Jerusalem, overtook, well, basically Titus came out, down and dismantled the temple. And then years later, the Islamic domination came and built a mosque right there where the temple once stood. It's called the Dome of the Rock. And on the outside of the Dome of the Rock, it contains many messages written in, in their Arabic language around the outside. Kind of like a big religious billboard of ancient times. And one of the writings on this, on this Dome of the Rock has this quotation, God has no companion. Now the word companion here on the side of this building is an Arabic word that is often used to designate a son or an offspring. So it's basically saying God has no son. And this is a direct repudiation, a rejection of the principal teaching of the Christian faith. We as believers in Christ Jesus hold that Jesus is God's Son. That He is divine. That He is the God-man. That He Himself not only is the Son of God, but that He is God Himself. He's not a prophet. He's not uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Dome of the Rock mosque has other sayings on there about Jesus. That He is not the Son of God. That he was a good teacher, that he was a, a prophet, that, uh, that he was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. And many other religions of the world would also deny that God has any offspring. If they believe in a God, uh, uh, a, a, a kind of a, a singular God, a monotheism. If they had a monotheistic, uh, they would say, oh no, there is no other God outside of the one God. They would reject that God has ever even visited the world in some manifest shape or form. They would reject that Jesus himself is God. But I want you to know that I am not ashamed of the fact that I believe the revelation of God's word 
in which Jesus plainly teaches that he is not only the Son of God, but that he is God of very God. He is God in the flesh. In this text that we read, verse 40, uh, uh, verse 44 down through verse number 51, uh, Jesus here, he is stating his uniqueness. Jesus is unique. And he examples the manna as the bread from heaven. Do you remember what it said in verse number, uh, verse number 47? Uh, no, uh, verse number 49. He said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. He's referring to himself there. But he is using the example of the manna coming. You remember the story how the children of Israel out in the desert and how that they were hungry and God caused manna uh, to materialize in the morning on the ground. And they would eat that and have and be sufficed as far as nutritional uh, nutritional needs are concerned. But Jesus is saying that was a bread in the Old Testament, but they ate that bread and they died, every one of them. Every one of them that put manna in their mouth, it may have sustained them many years in the wilderness, but eventually they all died. They ate the bread of God, and still died. But Jesus is contrasting himself when he says, I am from the Father and I come to this earth to give you life. I am the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. The bread from heaven which you will eat and you will live forever. You see, there are many that would try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. This is one of those occasions in which Jesus did not explicitly say, I am divine, I am God. But in so many words, once you put them together, you realize he is stating that he is divine. He is from God. He is God. In John 20, verse uh, 26 through 29, this is the scene after the resurrection. Jesus was seen by some in the garden. I believe that John has the, uh, has the occasion in which he speaks to Mary Magdalene. But in John chapter number 20, he also visits with his disciples in the, in the evening in the upper room. And you remember he appears to himself one week. Thomas was not there. And they said, oh, Thomas, you missed it. Jesus appeared to us. He said, well, at least I, I won't believe that until I... Until I put my hands in the wounds, remember, put my hands in the, I put my fingers in the wounds of his hands, my finger in the wound in his side. In the next week, Thomas is with them, with the, with the disciples, and Jesus appears. We pick up reading in John 20, 26 through 29. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he, this is Jesus talking to Thomas, then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Realizing that Jesus had genuinely risen from the dead, Thomas exclaims uh, without any equivocation, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus were not God, never considered himself to be God, then these words would be weighty and these words would be considered blasphemy. To state that another person is God is not only idolatry, it is also blasphemy. And Jesus, if he were a prophet, a representative from God, who was not God, would rightly chastise him for such a statement. But he doesn't. He doesn't give Thomas a curse. Jesus' response was not a condemnation, but actually was a blessing. He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. If Jesus never claimed to be God, then what do you call that? In John 14, 6, Jesus made it even more clear. He told Philip, when Philip said, you know, Jesus said, I go my way and you cannot, the way, the way you know and the way you come. And Jesus was saying, or Philip was saying, Lord, just tell us the way. Just show us the way. And Jesus responds in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It is an exclusive claim that he is the only way, the only avenue, the only door in which he said, I am the door. I, I, am, I am the bread of life. I am the water. I am the door. I am the resurrection. He is the only way to God. I will not be ashamed of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. In verses 47 through 51, Jesus is making an exclusive claim. I am the bread from heaven. The only bread. And if anyone eats of this bread, he'll be given eternal life. There are some in the sphere of Christianity that want to hem-haw around and, and basically say, well... Everybody, nobody really goes to hell. Nobody really suffers the judgment of God. God's too good and kind to exact some infinite uh, painful punishment of a place called hell. No, eventually everybody makes it to heaven. Everybody will be saved just as long as they're sincere. The world respond, And the world responds, yes. That only makes sense with so many people in the world with such a diverse uh, diverse beliefs and religions. It only makes sense that if there really is a God that, that these people who earnestly believe that, that in Muhammad, these people that only earnestly believe in Shiva, uh, these people that, that only earnestly believe in the Dalai Lama, in the, in the Buddha, surely, I mean it only makes sense just part of their culture, surely they would make it to hell. They wouldn't be condemned to hell because they never heard of Jesus. 
That's not what this Bible says, world. The world hates and gags and coughs at the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. When someone knows their Bible and says that only people that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus will go to heaven, the world has a heart attack. That you could be so narrow-minded as to believe that there's only one way. You moron, you idiot, there's more than, there's a million and one ways to get to one destination. How could you be so narrow-minded and so bigoted and listen, like it, lump it, bump it, jump it, take it off the street and, and dump it. Jesus is the only way to God. I'll not be ashamed of it. I'll not cower down from it. He is the only way to God. Not through grandma, not through a series of prayers, not through any other religion or cultural uh, confinement. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, Brother Ronnie, what about those people who don't know Jesus? That's the great commission. That's what we're supposed to do. Make him known. But I'll not back down. I want to go on record that Jesus exclusively is the bread of heaven and the only bread that gives eternal life. He is God, the very God. He is the Son of God. He is the only way of salvation. I will not be ashamed of the sacrifice. I will not be ashamed of the sovereignty of Jesus. Who Jesus is. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of His claims. Don't be ashamed of how that you are an outlier as far as the popular opinion of the world, I'm sorry, we've always been on the fringe. We've always been on the outside. Those that believe strictly orthodox teaching has always been on the outside. Don't whine, get in line. You're just like every other Christian that believes the Bible. You will always be ostracized. You'll always be seen as a narrow-minded bigot. I will not be ashamed of His sovereignty. I will not be ashamed of His sacrifice. Go with me to verse number 52. This is the Jews' response. Jesus just said that He's the living bread. He's the one that gives life by the bread. Notice verse 52. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves. A big brouhaha. Start arguing with each other. How can this man give us his flesh to eat. Did Jesus say anything about flesh? Nope. He said bread. Bread from heaven. Never said one thing about flesh. They jumped the gun. They went to a conclusion that Jesus never made. Will he give his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat and are dead, but he that eateth of this bread 
shall live forever. Well, Jesus just takes their, their assumption and says, okay, I'll up the ante. <laughs> I, I, yes, I am the flesh from heaven. And you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, let me give you a little background of John chapter number 6. Why are we talking about bread? What's the big deal about bread? Well, John chapter 6, actually in its early verses, is the feeding of the 5,000. You remember how Jesus with his disciples, he'd been teaching and all these disciples were with him and all these multitude, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, were following him as late in the evening and they needed something to eat and Jesus said, you give them something to eat and they said, I can't do that. And then, and then Andrew brings the little boys, well, he's got five loaves and two fishes, that's, that's something, that's enough for you, Jesus, maybe to eat. Remember, Jesus takes the five loaves and two fishes, he blesses them and breaks them. And he starts handing out bread and handing out bread and handing out fish and handing out fish until 5,000, not counting women and children, were all sealed. Had a full dinner. It was a miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, after the miracle, the crowd sees what has been done. And it's, it's not that everybody got a crumb. Everybody was ate. Everybody filled. It was a miracle. That's why they wanted to take and make him king. If a guy can do this, he needs to be our king. So they begin to, to take Jesus and make him king. Jesus takes his disciples then and says, we got to defuse the situation. You get in a boat, you go that way. He sent them out on the water. He went into a high mountain to pray and defuse the whole situation. Remember at the midnight hour, Jesus was praying. He saw his disciples on the sea and they were in a storm. They were about to sink. Jesus goes to them walking on the water. He gets in the boat. And uh, goes to the other side. The next morning is when this whole discussion about the bread takes place. Jews came to him and said, hey, I want some more of that bread. That brings up the subject of bread. That's why Jesus is talking about bread in, in the 47 through 52. And, and their, their uh, deduction, their conclusion in 52 brought Jesus into talking about 53 through 58. The flesh and the bread. He's making this analogy over and over there. He's, they're talking about this bread. So that bring and so even in the feeding of the 5000 now in the feeding of the 5000 Jesus is displaying in his miracle God's salvation. Jesus is not going to open up a little a little side business where he just makes fish and bread for everybody, you know, that comes that's not what he does. Why did he have this miracle? Well, it's because he's teaching something in such a small meal as five loaves and two fishes, it is broken, it is blessed, and it's enough for all. Isaiah 53 says that, G, says that the Messiah would be a root out of dry ground. He said to look upon Him, it was nothing for us to be attracted to Him. He was nothing to be, nothing to be admired, nothing to take note of. He was a root out of dry ground. And the reality is Jesus is exactly that. He doesn't look like much, just like five loaves and two fishes compared to 5,000 people. He's not much. He doesn't look like much to, uh, to what is Jesus among all the needs of all them? Same thing in salvation. That's the way the world looks at Jesus. How can this man that lived 2,000 years ago, that had genuinely radical teachings but died on a cross and his disciples said that he got it from the grave, that's all kind of questionable. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. But how, how can this man from history have enough to meet all the needs of not only the 5,000 in our city, but the millions and billions around the world? How is that possible? Well, 
He's broken on the tree. He gives the fish and the bread to the disciples, which are the apostles. And those apostles begin to break it or begin to take it and feed it to the multitudes and all the needs are met. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus broken on the cross. He gives the message of the gospel to us. We're to take that gospel and hand it out to everybody we possibly can. It is a picture of him giving his life on the cross. Here in verse number 51, Jesus makes direct reference to his sacrificial death. Look at what he said in 51. I will give my flesh. This is the bread from heaven that I will give. And I will give my flesh which, will, which I will give for the life of the world. Yes, Jesus did mention flesh in there. I missed it, so sorry about that. But he, he said, I, I give my flesh. I give. He's talking about a sacrificial death on the cross. He is shadowing the cross. He is telling of his sacrifice. He explains Oh, what this death means in verse 53 through 58. That does sound odd, doesn't it? Jesus is saying it over and over and over again. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. The disciple must eat my flesh in order to have eternal life. He says it again and again and again. And this is what, this is what causes many to turn away. What is he saying? I mean... The Jews take it as cannibalism. They're to eat his body. And remember, in the first century, the rumor of the disciples was, about the disciples of Christ, was that they're cannibals. They, they eat flesh and they drink blood. So what's being said here? Listen, rest assured, this is not cannibalism. That's not what Jesus is talking about. As we come to the scenes of the Lord's Supper being instituted, we see the fulfillment of these words. But here in John 6, Jesus is telling them this truth and they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, many of the disciples will walk away, will not follow him again. Uh, in verse 66, and from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They didn't understand completely what Jesus was saying. Do you think Jesus... Would, would, would do something, would require his disciples to do something that is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law. Do you really? That's, what, that's what's written in the Old Testament law. Cannibalism is outlawed in the Mosaic law. Do you really think Jesus would? But they didn't understand. And they stopped following him and walked away. But for those that do not understand and stay, it is a different story. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we would sing, my dad would sing that song, I don't need to understand, I just need to hold his hand. You remember that old song? I don't ever need to ask the reason why, because I know he'll make a way through the night or through the day. I don't need to understand, I just need to hold his hand. Many of these disciples that probably did not understand what Jesus was saying made that deduction. I don't understand what you mean by eat your flesh, but I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I'm just going to hold to your hand. It pictures that Jesus, what Jesus does on the cross. Let me be clear. There is not salvation in this bread. Let me be clear. When we take this bread today, 
it is not particularly what Jesus is referring to when he says, because I told you, this all makes sense down the road when they're sitting there in the upper room and Jesus takes the bread and says, here, here's my body, take and eat. Here's my blood, take and drink. It all makes sense then. And in some ways, it makes sense. He was, he was talking about a picture. He was, he was, and, and if you followed him, if you keep following him, you'll understand. But know this, there is no salvation in that bread. There is no salvation in, in that juice. If you eat that cracker and you're lost, you'll just be, uh, you'll just be a, a sinner with a cracker in your belly. It might make you sick, actually. According to, according to 1 Corinthians, it might make you sick if you eat the bread and you're not, not saved. If you drink that juice, you'll still be a sinner, but with juice in your belly, okay? It's not going to change anything. The truth of salvation is not of this world. It's not of this building. It's not on a card. It's not in a baptismal pool. It's not in a cup. It's not in a cracker. It is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. His blood and righteousness given to us upon faith and trust in Him. That's salvation. That's what saves. That's what gives eternal life is a belief and trust in that. I believe verse 56 gives us a clue as to the spiritual reality of His Word. Look at verse number 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, listen to this, dwelleth in me and I in him. What's, talk, what's going on there? When you take in something to eat, it becomes part of you and you become part of it in a sense. The two are placed together. You know, that's what salvation is. That's what regeneration is. God dwelling in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and we being a part of His body, the body of Jesus in heaven. That's what we see in the epistles. Listen to Galatians 3, uh, 28. Neither is there Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is in us by virtue of the living presence of the Holy Spirit by regeneration. And we, according to Ephesians, are in Christ. Seated in the heavenlies as if, it, as if we're already there. Just like the meal you ate yesterday evening. You became part of it. It became part of you. Here Jesus is picturing a spiritual truth. That when we come to know him in saving faith. He becomes part of us. We become part of him. That's salvation. Not a cracker. Not a juice. But faith and trust in Jesus. We become part of him. He becomes part of us. I will not be ashamed of what Jesus did for me on the cross because that's where it all takes place. That's where he becomes my bread when he takes my sin on the cross and dies for me. Truth be told, I do not believe that we as believers in Jesus have a very good grasp of all that Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why we meet uh, every, every Sunday, every Lord's Day. We study on Wednesday night. We want to know more, understand more of 
what Jesus has done for us. And so, and, and because of that, we, we have this unending understanding of what Christ has done for us. As a matter of fact, I think that all throughout eternity in heaven, we're going to spend day after day into infinity learning more about what Jesus did for us actually on the cross when he died on the cross. But one thing is clear. One thing we should take home. One thing we should hold dear is I will not be ashamed of the blood of Jesus Christ and His death upon the cross for my behalf. Not by my works, not by my righteousness. It's what Jesus did on the cross that brings salvation, that gives eternal life. I become part of Him. He becomes part of me. In a religious world where there's so many that want to mark out references about about the cross and about blood because it becomes too gory to our, to our sensibilities. I will not be ashamed of Jesus. Why? Why would I ever be ashamed? The Apostle Paul said it best. I will glory in the cross of Jesus Christ because of His death for me. I will not be ashamed of His sovereignty. I'll not be ashamed of His sacrifice. Thirdly and lastly, I will not be ashamed of His supremacy. I'll read 59 through the end of the chapter. Listen closely. And these things said he in in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it. He said unto them doth this not, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up from where he was before it is the spirit that quickeneth and the flesh profiteth nothing the words I speak unto you they are spirit and they are life but there are some of you that believe not for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him and he said therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered and said, uh, Answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Having have Not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus is saying, are you offended in me? Does this offend you, what I've said? He said, then he goes on to say something really odd in 62. What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What is, I mean, the first time I read that, I'm like, what is Jesus saying here? And he's basically making this statement. Do I have to ascend up, do you have to see me ascend up to heaven and come back down to believe my words, to believe who I am? I made a statement, you may not understand, uh, But I have made the statement, now you're kind of questioning what I said. 
are you saying it's too hard a statement? I don't know if I can do that. Uh, do you have to, do I have to, Jesus basically, do I have to go up to heaven and sit on the throne where I came from for you to believe? For you to respond to the truth I've given you? Do I have to go to heaven and sit on the throne to prove to you who I am and what I've said? That my words are life and that, that I am in my, in my flesh and in my body that, that one that is salvation. So Jesus is saying, do I have to do this in front of you for you to believe? And then 63, 63 is the key to the whole conversation. 63 is the, the truth that's really hidden from the Jews who will not believe. He said, the words that I, he said, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they're life. Is Jesus talking about gnawing on his elbow for eternal life? No. Is Jesus talking about bread? Bread being eternal life? No. He said these are spirit and they are truth. Here Jesus is reminding them that he's not talking about cannibalism. The flesh profits little. The flesh is not going to do any good. And it's not going to do you any good to eat this bread and drink this cup without understanding its meaning. It may be an exercise in remembrance, a moment of worship, but there is no eternal significance in these elements before us. Jesus here is finally cluing us into what He's saying. By receiving Him and saving faith, we are basically ingesting Him. And we are receiving Him into ourselves. And at that point, He becomes part of us. We become part of Him. It was at this point that some of the disciples began to leave. They turned back. To bear the reproach of Christ's words was too difficult for these men. To follow Jesus from that point after, He, he had made such a, a scene in front of the Jews. The whole body and blood stuff that He said in front of these Jews. And the Jews are all looking at, looking at these followers and saying, Is that what you really believe? That you're going to eat His flesh? You ever been around somebody that, that said something incredibly awkward, almost offensive, and you think to yourself, Why did they have to say that? Things were going so good. Why do you have to say something like, I can't believe you said that. I'm sure you all have. That's what these followers were going through. Because of the reproach of the words of Jesus, they turned and walked away. And because of the supremacy He proclaimed of Himself, they turned and walked away. Jesus then takes the twelve and He casts His eyes on them and asks this hand-picked dozen of His closest disciples, Are you going to go away too? Are you going to turn away? I wonder if that is what Jesus is saying to every one of us today. When it comes to what He teaches about salvation, being exclusively in Himself, being faith and trust, not a cracker, not a ritual, not a juice, but He Himself to receive Him, the spiritual truth of who He is. Are you going to walk away? Are you going to be ashamed of His words, His supremacy, His call to an outrageous surrender to Him? Not even understanding it all completely, but bowing down to Him. 
Will you be ashamed of Jesus at home, at school, down at the job, or at the store? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Notice the words of response from Peter. You know, Peter's really good at sticking his foot in his mouth, but he knocked it out of the park in verse 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Keep in mind, he may not have understood that he was talking about not knowing on his elbow. He may not have completely understood. But we knew this, there is no one I can turn to. I cannot walk away. These words from Peter talk about that exclusive, once again, hit the note of the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. Peter is giving to Christ the ultimate place of supremacy. Where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do? You alone have the words of life. I don't know what it all means now. I'm not real sure what I'm supposed to do. But I do know this. I will go where you send me. I will do your command. I will be who you want me to be. Because there is no other place to go. Thoroughly convinced of who Jesus is. Listen, when it comes to those points of standing up for Jesus, you need to know right then and there in your mind that there is no other place to go. No other place to look. Turn your back. And turning your back and walking away is not an option. I believe Jesus to be supreme over my life. I believe I will do what He asked me to do. And He said in remembrance of Him, take this bread, drink this cup, and remember what I did for you. I will do it. I will observe His supremacy. His rule, however difficult to receive, is the rule of my life. I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ because He is superior over my life. I'm not ashamed that I'm a pastor. I'm not ashamed that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed to carry a Bible. I'm not ashamed to talk about Jesus. I'm not ashamed to be a member of Faith Community Church. I'm not ashamed to belong to Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't turn and walk away. Why? Because He reigns supreme over my life. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 2 Timothy 1.8 Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. 1 Peter 4, 16. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Again and again, Paul and Peter, don't be ashamed. I'll not be ashamed of the gospel. I'll not be ashamed of the afflictions. I'll not be ashamed of the stoning, the exile, the shipwreck. I'll not be ashamed of Jesus. What we do here this morning is very intimate. I'll agree. Just a few familiar friends gathered together around the table. It's very intimate. It's hidden. We're not doing this on the road. We don't set up the table out there so passers-by can see. No. It's very intimate. Behind these sanctuary walls. But When you leave this place, you carry with you an allegiance. A surrender that will not walk away from Jesus. I'll not walk away from Him. I'll not 
the shame of Jesus. I love the way the hymns that we sing oftentimes condense the truth of God's Word down to some beautiful lines. That's the case of Joseph Grigg. In 1832, he wrote a hymn that is largely forgotten in our churches today. It's, it's entitled, Jesus and Shall It Ever Be? Listen to these two stanzas. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes and heaven depend, know when I, know when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere His name. Ashamed of Jesus, empty pride. I'll boast a Savior crucified. And oh, may this my portion be, my Savior, not ashamed of me. What did he say? If you'll be ashamed of me before this world, I'll be ashamed of you before my Heavenly Father. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. That's a whole message in and of itself. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Shall it ever be that we will not be ashamed of Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed as we come to a moment of invitation. You can remain seated. You know, I want us to reflect in our hearts and minds as to whether we have been ashamed of Jesus and resolve in our hearts that we'll not be ashamed of Him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. Thank You for the Lord Jesus. God, take the bumbled words that I have tried to explain this morning and use them to penetrate our hearts. God, help us to have boldness as we face a world in which more and more our exclusive claims cause the world to, uh, to make their faces and hatred known unto us. Oh God, help us to not be ashamed. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.